Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm John Ashmore, the acting editor of CapEx. This week we're going international and talking about two countries that have been brought to their knees by brutal authoritarian governments. The episode split into two halves, the first one on Cuba and the second on Venezuela. For the first half, I talked to Boris Arenas Gonzalez. Now, Boris was originally meant to talk to me in person at our London office, uh, but he was not allowed to leave the country by the communist regime. Instead, he joined us down the line from Havana, to talk about the life of an activist in Cuba, the black market, the general economic and political situation there, and eventually how he sees a political transition taking place on the island. So, hi, Boris. Thanks for being with us. Um, Can you just explain what is the situation in Cuba now? Well, the situation in Cuba politically is not a... Very complex now because, uh, as you know, there is a new president. For first time in in 60 years, we have a president that is uh, whose name is not Castro, uh, whose last name is not Castro, and that uh, create a lot of interrogations to the whole population. Of course, the president, the new president Miguel Díaz Canel Bermúdez, he tries all the time uh, to keep the idea that the process the ideological process is the same than in the past. In fact, he has a Twitter account and he says all the time, uh, we are continuity. It's the hashtag, we are continuity. Right? Oh, okay. But uh, the, but the reality is of, is, of course, that people is waiting for changes. But what happened? People, in general, people and myself, too, uh, don't think that Miguel Díaz-Canel has in this moment the real power. People think that the real power is on Raúl Castro, who it continues as the leader of the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. So, what is the what is the situation that is going to to that we are going to see ahead? Is still early to to be clear. My point of view is that, of course, my point of view is that Miguel Diaz Canel has his own ideas, and of course, he's going to uh, to to work really as a president. But after Raúl Castro died, or after Raúl Castro abandoned the real power, and I and I think as the rest of Cuban population. I think uh, we think that uh, Raúl Castro has stopped any reform, and 
until his his, his uh, diet, of course. Raúl Castro uh, doesn't want any more change uh, and hasn't uh, promoted any change in the last four or five years. That mm. is uh, uh, the political situation that we have in this moment. Okay, so it's fair to say that you have a lot of talk about change. Um, you were saying that we are continuity is the slogan of Diaz-Canel, but not much political action. But, I mean, how, how would you describe the situation? What is daily life like for normal Cubans today? Yes, no, the, the situation, economical situation, is, uh, is very hard for common Cuban. Uh, for example, the transport, the transport in Cuba is awful. Uh, most of Cuban citizens uh, move by uh, public transportation. Cuban doesn't have cars. Uh, that is the reason that, and why you, see, you, you have seen the bishops of Cuba with very old cars because everyone are all the time renovating this old car because government don't permit to Cuban citizens to get new cars. And then we need to use a public transportation and it's very, it's really hard. And in the last months, it has uh, made still worse. That is, is a lot, <laughs> believe me, believe me when I tell it, it's very difficult what I am talking about uh, because in the last months it is worse because there are, without any doubt, that have been recognized officially, uh, there are a, a lot of troubles with uh, oil that used to come from Venezuela, but the crisis and the United States pressure and the pressure in general that exists around Venezuela and relations with Cuba-Venezuela, it has become more difficult to the government to acquire that oil. There is also a problem of currency. The government has not currency enough to get uh, goods in the international market. And, uh, but, but at the same time, the government doesn't promote and keep uh, with a lot of difficult uh, the production in the national in the national market. I mean, Cuban people doesn't have uh, the possibility, legal possibility, of produce goods for the uh, national consumer. That creates a, a great crisis of goods for people, of food. Uh, there are a lot of problems. It's very expensive to get a, a, an elemental diet. I, I mean, that is about transportation. I have talked to about, for example, food. It's, it's, it's the every, in, in the everyday life, uh, you feel the rigor, uh, the, the hard situation of this, of this uh, aspect. But you also have, for example, the situation with hospitals and with medicines. Mm. The government has the government has recognized uh, that doesn't have capacity of produce the the usual list of medicines that the government used to produce, but that was already a, redu a reduced number. I mean, we have now a, a harder crisis in the last three or four years, but. In the recent months, government has recognized that that problem is bigger, and it means people that die. Don't, it is not anecdotic. It, is, it means people who are dying because they don't have medicines. Uh, but on, on this situation, the government keeps uh, the monopoly of, of news. And of course, you don't read in the daily life, you don't read about that in the official media. 
that is uh, that is a crime. First of all, that is a crime. After that, that is a hard situation because people and even authorities can have the can have the magnitude can have the magnitude of the problem. Uh, I have a friend, for example, who's, who used to say, well, when you hear about the problems in the world, you listen in the media, in the official media, you listen that uh, the, the world is suffering a lot of things. But when you hear about the situation in Cuba, it's something like anecdotic. People speak as if it were uh, something that hasn't, that doesn't have any consequences, right? There is a journalist in the TV that speaks about the, 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 uh, the not sufficient medicines, and he speaks as if it wouldn't have any consequences. Uh, did I speak well? Did I speak clear? Yeah, very clearly. And I, I was, re- okay. yeah, I was reading that they don't even have painkillers in the pharmacy in Cuba. Is that is that true? Yes, yes, that's true. We, we for example, we have problem with aspirins. We have problem with ibuprofen. We have problem with, in general, we have problem with the list of painkillers, but not just painkiller. The government has recognized that, for example, that there are not uh, for people who who suffer of, of cardiac diseases, people who, who suffer of high pressure blood, people who suffer of that problem with sewer, I don't know, di- diabetes. Diabetes in English? Diabetes, diabetes. yes, diabetes. Uh, government has recognized it don't have medicines for this for this person. We have problems with, for example, with antihistamines for allergies. It's very bad because in Cuba, uh, because they, our our weather, uh, weather, weather, yes, yeah. weather. Our, uh, in Cuba, we have a lot of problems with medicines, with antihistamines, with with allergies. We have a lot of problems with that. For example, the, for example, the medicine for asthma uh, for people with asthma. Uh, sometimes you don't have in the pharmacy, in the drugstore, and that is really a big problem. The other side, the other, the other situation that it most trade is the that the drugstore has very big lines, that very big queues, right? Yeah. With old people, old people must be hours on 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 long lines to take the, the drugs they need. That is another uh, situation, and of course the black market that develops with this situation, and um, people who sell medicines very expensive for everyday, for common life, and uh, that is another problem that we have in this moment, and we have had, we we have always had had that problem, but it is more difficult in the in the current days. So you talked about the black market there. But how big would you say the private economy is in Cuba? Either the black market or legal private oh, yes. businesses? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I, I, I answer. I try to answer. Okay. I don't remember if I six hundred thousand. 
So you can imagine it's a big uh, group of the Cuban people with, with with capacity to work. But the problem, but the problem is that that those work are work uh, I, we say something like marginal kind of work. For example, the lawyers in Cuba can be uh, private lawyers and other. All the professional works can be developed in a private way. So it's something like economic of misery, with some jobs better and some jobs that are not uh, good. So I mean, six hundred thousand, right? It's, it's a good number. About black market. Black market is a necessity of the communism economies. Uh, for example, the Soviet Union used it, the people in Soviet Union used it to say the Ministry of Black Market. Something similar we have here. In black market, you can get uh, goods, food, clothes, uh, medicines. Uh, you can get for, ah, my, my, um, my, my, for, for building homes, materials, materials, tools for building homes. Uh, of course, the car pieces. So it's, I think, I would say, that there is not any aspect of the common necessities from population that doesn't have an offer in the black market. Of course, black market is uh, bigger at all than the um, economical, that the government, that the official economy. Okay. And it's bigger, without any doubt. Yeah. Um, do you think that the Cuban government presumably knows about the black market and they just they let it carry on they let it continue anyway yes without any doubt government knows better than 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 me and the common population because government has the ways to 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 test the situation with the black market but they know it is impossible to keep the everyday life with black market the the role of the government in this kind of economies is to to keep some more controlled or less controlled uh, by the by the situation of the population by the necessities. If if in an image, if we imagine imagine a, a situation in Cuba without black market, there are a lot of people that can take a dress, that can eat, that can eat or that can take a, a medicine. It's impossible to imagine the everyday life without the black market in a communist economy. So, Boris, you were talking about the black market there. I mean, what does that mean for you as a political activist? How does that make your life more difficult? Well, um, as I told you, uh, the everyday life for Cuban is relational with black market. But you, you don't wake up to that reality enough until you get as you you uh, become in a civil society activist, in a political activist, or a human rights defender. Because then you can't continue uh, with the same relation with the black market. Because, of course, there are the laws that uh, define black market as a crime. And if you are an activist, the government uh, wishes to put you in prison but not exactly saying, well, uh, this activist uh, is in prison because he's an activist. No, he wants to get you making a crime. And then when you became, for example, in a 
human right defender, then you uh, you must abandon most of the black market uh, commerce. But that is really a problem. I, I, I told you before because, for example, you need food for your kids, uh, and it's more expensive in, in an official market than in the and more expensive, a lot of more, much money. So uh, the everyday life, that is another situation that made more difficult the everyday life of a human rights defender or a political uh, activist. Okay, and um, what do you think, do you think that the situation in Cuba is... Are people getting angrier with the regime, do you think? They feel their lives are getting worse? Mm-hmm. Well, um, um, not every people is angry with the government. That is impossible. You always are going to have a group that defend uh, uh, the government uh, uh, in a way that it doesn't have any stop without any situation. It's something like a fanatic situation, and it's not only relational with the with those people who, who they have interest and get benefit from the government. It's not only that. Uh, you can see that on, is, uh, also in Venezuela, where there could be a 20% of the population, for example, that support the Maduro regime. And there are a lot of people who want the Maduro regime because they have interests. But there are also some something, I think fanatic is something very simple, but it's something like a fanatical situation. People who support the regime all the time. But I am completely sure that in Cuba most of people uh, doesn't like the regime. I am completely sure of that, of course. But remember, we don't have surveys. We don't have uh, this kind of best, social test to say with exactitude how much big is that percent. But there is another uh, group of the population that doesn't, uh, that they don't express clearly their disapprove of the governmental gestion. There is a group that doesn't say clearly. They, for example, they could be members of the political communist party, but then they are members of the communist party, but their children are in United States, are in European Europe, or are in Latin America, and you see that there is not a legitimate uh, militants, and it's not legitimate because they can work as a repressive way for Cubans. Uh, activists, but in the other way, they have familiars in other countries living completely. They are son, their children, their brother, their family, and they have relation, common relation with them. In the last months, we have had some uh, scandalous, scandalous situation because, for example, there is a well-known uh, official journalist who read every note of the government against the United States, and he read, I mean. He read this note with rage, um, with uh, very loud, uh, and then he goes to Miami to visit his daughter, and, and people have made, made pictures of him in Miami, and then people say, well, this, this, this person is completely fake. Uh, last week, last week there was the education, the Ministry of Education. She made a tweet 
saying that Cuba, who was living out of Cuba, can uh, say anything about political situation in Cuba. Uh, she made a tweet, and people reacted uh, to this. Well, then some people in the social network, they put the picture of her daughter, the daughter of the minister, who lives in Uruguay. And they have normal relations, and probably there is no problem, and probably this minister, this woman, is thinking to retire and then go to, to live to, to Uruguay. It is probably and doesn't have problem. So you have a lot of people that support the government or that don't, don't express clearly their position, but you see that in a normal situation of elections, of free elections, they wouldn't be, of course, Castro's uh, supporters. Mm. And you talked about um, Twitter there. I mean, can can activists, opposition people use Twitter in Cuba easily? Yes, uh, in the current days, in 2019, there was a approved uh, internet service on the mobile phone for the first time in our history. So we have now in the actual life, in our actual life, a very expensive, it's very expensive uh, uh, Wi-Fi service only in the mobile. I don't have, for example, well, uh, internet service in the computer. Uh, I don't have that. I don't have a, a contract of internet services for my house. I only have internet services in my phone. It's very expensive. Imagine uh, 600 megabytes. It costs uh, seven dollars. And the media, media of salaries in Cuba is saying it's now thirty-eight dollars. A, what, a week or a month? Thirty-eight dollars. How much did you say? The media thirty-eight dollars is the media salary. The salary for how much? For a week or for a month? Yeah, for a week or for a month? No, for months. For eighteen months. No, for a week. No, for a month. For months. So thirty-eight dollars a month is the average salary. Thirty-eight a month. Wow. Like probably fourteen. Probably fourteen. Okay. The cost of six hundred megabytes. Megabytes. Six hundred. Yeah. Nine dollars. So. Seven dollars. No, seven. Okay. So it's twenty of your entire income. It's uh, 600 megabytes. Yes. Wow. 100%. Yeah. Of course, of course, it's not a generalized service. Not everybody in Cuba has a Wi-Fi in the mobile, of course. A Wi-Fi, no. Not everyone has internet in the mobile, of course. Yeah. And then, uh, but with that service, in 2019, for the first time, we have had that service. And there are a lot of activists who have a Twitter account and work a lot on, on Twitter. But the government also has created, a, like in Russia, like in some other, uh, some other countries, there is an army of people who is creating all the time Twitter accounts, Twitter accounts, false Twitter accounts. It's a very big problem. Uh, we hope that now with that, uh, with that uh, actions that this kind of social networks are taken against face accounts, probably it would be more difficult for the government to create so many face-to-death uh, accounts. Yes. Okay. Um, what is your hope for, I mean, the future of the regime? Do you think it's possible that the regime will fall 
and be replaced? Okay, so you don't want a revolution. You want a gradual, you know, a change. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Boris, thank you very much indeed. We really appreciate your time. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, if things are struggling in Cuba, they're scarcely any better a few hundred miles south in Venezuela where the country's economic and political crisis has been well documented in media throughout the world. Four million people or so have fled to neighbouring countries, uh, mostly Colombia and Brazil, but also uh, thousands who've ended up in Europe, particularly in Spain. Now, though many of us, including myself, have tended to see the regime and its crisis as symptomatic of the failures of central planning, our next guest had a slightly different take on things. Diego Moya Ocampos 
who grew up in Venezuela and now works as a political risk analyst at IHS Market in London, says that it makes as much sense to treat the Maduro regime not as a socialist government, but as a criminal cartel. I think the key thing is that despite the fact that sanctions are a key driver for regime change, sanctions on its own are highly unlikely to lead to uh, regime change, especially because uh, Nicolas Maduro continues exercising significant control over the armed forces. Uh, And the armed forces are key in Venezuela, uh, mainly because, or mainly the top ranks of uh, the armed forces represented in the high military command are key because, in practice, Maduro leads a military regime. In practice, the armed forces basically run the economy. They run uh, oil services, illegal mining, they control ports, airports, and some of them, some top military commanders, not all, are highly involved also in drug trafficking. So they fear that if Maduro goes down, they will go down as well. So this small group uh, of top military commanders will continue blocking any uh, negotiation, any electoral solution uh, for Maduro to step down from power. So the armed forces are a key player behind the scenes for any potential regime change in Venezuela. Mm -hmm. And what hope do you see for Guaido and the opposition there? I mean, are they really making any progress? I mean... Guaido is making significant progress in the sense that he's managed to go beyond uh, the middle classes and connect with the wider population. He's currently touring the country. He's approaching the people directly in the regions. However, uh, despite the fact also that he has managed to secure the recognition of more than 55 countries, we can say that the free world currently recognizes Guaido as the constitutional president of Venezuela, he so far has been unable to take full control of government functions in practice because, again, Maduro controls the military, and while Maduro controls the military, he will continue exercising control over uh, a Supreme Court based in Caracas, uh, which is aligned with the ruling uh, United Socialist Party of Venezuela. He will continue controlling the electoral authority, and in practice, Maduro will continue controlling the economy, both the formal economy and both the legal uh, black markets. Yeah. And what's, what kind of role does Cuba play in all this? Because we don't hear about it that much in the Western media. How important is their, um, for example, their intelligence support and things like that to the Maduro regime? It's essential. It's essential uh, because uh, after, after the failed military coup uh, of April in 2002, uh, which attempted or which ousted uh, by then uh, President Chavez for 48 hours, the personal security of Biden Chavez and now by Maduro is run uh, by the Cubans. Uh, the Cubans exercise significant intelligence over top military ranks. Uh, they, in practice, are technical advisors in intelligence and defense matters, but uh, Maduro trusts his personal security to the Cubans, and the Cubans have a personal interest in keeping Maduro in power because Maduro in power basically represents, at the moment, 60,000 barrels per day of oil. Back in the good days of of Venezuela's economy or back uh, when the days of the commodities boom, Venezuela was sending around 100,000 barrels per day. But the most important thing to highlight here is that the main source of revenue of Cuba continues being 
the export of professional services in the form of uh, medical doctors, sports instructors, but crucially of intelligence and defense uh, uh, agents, which are part of Maduro's security apparatus and a key component to guarantee uh, political stability of his regime. I mean, what do you think um, the impact on Cuba has been of that reduction that you talked about? So you said it used to be 60,000, uh, sorry, it used to be 100,000 barrels a day. Now it's almost half that. Um, I mean, how big an impact is that having on Cuba? Sounds pretty massive. It is. It is indeed. It's massive. And it has been reflected in fuel shortages uh, taking place in Cuba. It has been reflected in the state of infrastructure. As we speak, uh, Cubans are starting school. And there's a lot of concerns about infrastructure of schools. Um, Diaz-Canel administration announced uh, an increase in the salaries for school teachers, uh, which three days after school classes have started, uh, the government is being unable uh, to keep the pledge of keeping up uh, to pay those salaries. So we're going to see a lot of teachers who have gone back to teach uh, in public schools, <laughs> again, withdrawing from that and, and basically being sent this time around by the Cuban regime. Uh, we've seen uh, a more intense uh, shortages, uh, not only of foreign exchange, uh, but also food supplies. Uh, that in part explains why uh, Diaz-Canel administration has also introduced uh, price controls. So but in all sense, you can see a significant impact on Cuba's economy as a result of the demise and the decline and the deterioration of uh, Venezuela's uh, economy. And just coming back to Venezuela, I mean, we're talking about the interaction between Cuba and Venezuela, but... I mean, how, if the Maduro regime is to fall, you've said it's a military regime and that's what's propping him up, how do you see that coming about? I think the key thing, again, is that sanctions are a key driver to force regime change, but sanctions on, on its own are unlikely to force regime change. Without a credible threat of the use of force, it's highly unlikely that Venezuelans on their own and I mean civil society and the military as well, are likely to uh, be able to force regime change. We have to remember that in Venezuela, uh, again, Maduro leads a military regime uh, with these uh, top military guys highly involved in drug trafficking, but there's also the, the Cubans, there's also the Russians, and there are a conglomerate of interests uh, which uh, continue acting so that Maduro continues being in power. So without a credible threat of the use of force, it is highly unlikely that Maduro's administration, which operates in practice as a drug cartel, as a criminal organization, will be uh, forced to step down. That's interesting, because often we talk about regimes in terms of ideology, you know, the left wing or right wing, but I mean, you mentioned Russia there, for example. It's often more of a kind of a cover-up for uh, people making a, a lot of money. Um, I mean, is that the same in Cuba? Are there people in the Cuban regime who are profiting heavily from the way their countries run? Absolutely. And just like in Venezuela and Cuba, actually, this started in Cuba. Uh, the military basically runs the, Cuno, the, the economy in Cuba. Uh, the military, uh, for example, through the Gaviota Group, owns most of the tourist infrastructure. Uh, and I'm, I'm including here also the infrastructure for hotels, marinas, uh, ports, uh, and just like in Cuba, the military has been key 
in managing the whole economy. That same thing we've seen replicated in Venezuela, where, again, the military run all the imports of food, of basic goods, where the military, again, runs uh, the oil services. I mean, the national oil company in Venezuela, PDVSA, is run by an active general, General Quevedo. Most of the top management roles of PDVSA are run by active top military officers from the army and in general terms from the armed forces. And this in, in, <laughs> also does explain why uh, we've seen a systematic decline in oil production, no? which has been the direct consequence not, not only of epic mismanagement, but also of widespread corruption in which the military, unfortunately, or at least the military aligned with Maduro and the ruling party have played a key role. Yeah, I mean, we talked about, uh, yeah, you talk about corruption there. I mean, a lot of the, especially the Chavez era ministers have left Venezuela. I mean, do you think there's more that governments in the West can be doing to bring them to, to book? I think uh, in the form of sanctions, there's much more than the EU, for example, can do about it. Yeah. Uh, and also uh, in terms of how you address the problem of Venezuela. Uh, I think there's much more than what the international community can do. Again, uh, when we see Venezuela, we cannot compare it with other authoritarian populist regimes in Africa or the Middle East. The situation of Venezuela is unprecedented for the region. In the region, we've seen in the past, for example, El Chapo Guzman in Mexico exercising significant influence uh, within some government ranks, uh, in Sinaloa, uh, within some ministries. We saw Pablo Escobar in Colombia, for example, exercising, becoming himself a senator and exercising significant authority over some authorities in Medellin. But we've never seen, as we've seen in Venezuela at the moment, a criminal organization taking direct control of all government posts. And that is what the region is facing at the moment. And that, that's why it's so difficult to force Maduro to step down just with sanctions, just uh, through uh, an electoral solution and just through a negotiation process. You need a more a cohesive uh, action from the region and the world, indeed, the free world, indeed, to deal with this regime as a criminal organization that they are. And, and this involves full understanding that the military, which basically what we've seen is uh, an expectation that sanctions will drive the military to change behavior, to withdraw support from Maduro, but just the proper understanding that many of those, these top military commanders, again, not all, a tiny minority, but the most powerful, the most influential minority, mm -hmm. fear that if Maduro falls, then they will be held accountable. They will not only lose their political and economic influence, but they will be held accountable for illicit activities, including drug trafficking, uh, for uh, money laundering in large scale, and indeed of gross human rights violations, including in the latest waves of civil unrest that we've seen in Venezuela in the last years. I mean, what about Venezuelans who have already left? I mean, I read a report somewhere about Chavez's finance minister who said that 300 billion had been taken out of Venezuela. You know, these people are living in, you know, in the European Union, in America. I mean, do you think that those governments should be doing more to, you know, track these people down, track down the money that's 
basically been stolen. Certainly, and it all has to do first with addressing the issue as a criminal organization. Why do you realize that this is not necessarily just a, a conventional socialist, authoritarian, nationalist, populist regime, but a criminal group using a socialist ideology for social cohesion? Then you can more accurately deal with the nature of the threat and with the issue that, again, uh, this administration and Chavez administration did have uh, laundered uh, money in large scale through the US, through EU, uh, and through many Latin American countries' financial systems, and uh, you know, uh, sort of move forward to, towards building a concrete solution over how to deal with this unprecedented uh, uh, threat. I mean, what do you think the journey that these people have been on is? Do you think that Chavez seemed to be a pretty authentic socialist when he started? Do you think they start off as ideologues and become criminals, or they're criminals all along? It was all part of the plan? I think like, uh, Chavez was lucky in the sense that when he came to power, he basically started using the revenues from a uh, national oil company, PDVSA, to, uh, instead of investing them in strengthening uh, this company's uh, upstream and downstream capabilities, he started allocating this funding for uh, social inclusion programs. But in the end, none of these social inclusion programs were sustainable under a scenario of uh, low oil prices, which is what we saw later on. So what we've seen from Chavez is not that his administration was necessarily less corrupt than Maduro, but he was less exposed to being accountable for that because he was benefit from high oil prices and for the commodities boom. What we're seeing in reality is that Maduro has given continuity to Chavez corrupt practices, to some of Chavez even authoritarian practices. We have to remember that uh, Venezuela was already in economic contraction before 2013 when Chavez was still alive. And this is a period where the oil barrel was over 100 uh, dollars per barrel. We also have to remember that when Chavez came to power, oil production in Venezuela was at around 3.4 million barrels per day. Uh, when Chavez died, oil production stood at around 2.4 million barrels per day. As we speak, oil production in Venezuela stands at around 750,000 barrels per day and continues systematically declining. And this decline in oil production, this uh, loss of the capabilities of national oil company PDVSA, which is basically the generator of, of revenues of Venezuela, basically has been, again, the result of widespread corruption and epic mismanagement, first by Chavez and then by Maduro. And this underlines uh, the damage that this uh, so-called socialism of the 21st century has done to Venezuela. It has been a regime which is, has not only been uh, not democratic, but also extremely corrupt. Mm. And what do you think, if you were sitting in a room now with Donald Trump or Boris Johnson, let's say, um, it would be an entertaining room. Um, if you were sitting in a room with Boris Johnson or Donald Trump, what would you say were, say, two or three uh, actions they could take to speed up the decline of the Maduro regime? Or is it worth trying to topple the regime? Would the results of toppling it be worse than a gradual change? 
Or has it already got so bad that it wouldn't make any difference? Yeah, I think that's one of the, of the key deterrents why uh, most countries have yet uh, deferred uh, sort of like uh, assessing or proposing a solution for the Venezuelan crisis. I do think that the risk of not acting are higher than the risks of acting. Mm -hmm. Because in general terms, what we've seen is that Maduro's administration is not only a kleptocracy, but also that while Maduro stays in power, uh, while uh, he will continue uh, moving Venezuela towards a rogue state, towards uh, a criminal state where he's giving control of vast areas of the Venezuelan territory to uh, drug cartels, uh, to Colombian insurgent groups like the DC and FARC, uh, like the Colombian ELN, uh, uh, and to other uh, criminal organizations linked with top government and military officers. So definitely, uh, the longer uh, this threat of Maduro's regime is not properly assessed, again, as a criminal group and with a law enforcement solution, to try to deal with a cartel which is not going to step down by negotiating or by trying to agree on early presidential elections, then I think the closer that that administration of U.S. Trump you were referring or of Boris Johnson or EU authorities will get closer uh, to a potential solution which could see again the starving Venezuelans, that those Venezuelans which are going through an unprecedented humanitarian and migration crisis in the region towards a solution in which they could be free to vote in free and fair elections uh, to force regime change and define a desire, a path of progress and prosperity for the, an oil-rich country. Let's remember that Venezuela is the country with the largest proven oil reserves and it's also a country rich in gas and minerals. And it's a country where basically is going through a humanitarian crisis, which basically means thousands of Venezuelans queuing for food, starving, and 3.4 million Venezuelans have been forced to leave the country, according to data from the United Nations. Uh, and what started as a political, economic, and social crisis has turned into a full-blown humanitarian migration crisis, driven, again, by a criminal group which is profiteering uh, by dealing with cocaine, uh, illegal mining, and so on. Okay. And my final question is really to just kind of bring it slightly back to where we began our discussion with Cuba. Is it an exaggeration to say that if the Maduro regime falls, then the Cuban regime will also fall out of necessity or not? And, and vice versa, if, if power changed in Cuba, would that have a knock-on effect in Venezuela? I think Cuba survived the fall of the Soviet Union. They survived for a 10 years, for 10 years, uh, a period known as a special period. And then, uh, well, Chavez came, and again, through this uh, agreement, where basically he was uh, sending Cuba 100,000 barrels per day, at some stage, 110,000 uh, barrels per day uh, to Cuba, again, in exchange for the export professional services, which basically, we have to say, it's a form of modern slavery, where the Cuban uh, regime is benefiting from these salaries but just paying a tiny bit of that to those Cuban doctors, to that uh, Cuban sports instructors, 
and indeed to those Cuban intelligence and defense uh, advisors uh, whose families are being held hostage in Cuba. So they don't even have the freedom to run away, despite the fact that we've seen many of those abandoning their own families out of desperation and running away uh, from, from Venezuela and trying to, to make their way towards the U.S. via uh, Central America. But the key thing here is that it is almost impossible for regime change to take place in Cuba or in Venezuela if we leave that solution to the Cubans and the Venezuelans alone. In Venezuela, you need a more active role of the international community, again, uh, dealing with the, this criminal group through a law enforcement solution, the way you deal with a drug cartel, mm -hmm. right? And trying to support the legitimate government of, of uh, the constitutional president, Juan Guaido, to exercise sovereignty over the Venezuelan territory against the DC and FARC rebels, against ELN insurgents, against drug cartel operating uh, in the territory, and against uh, organized crime groups linked with these uh, top military and government officers. And when it comes to Cuba specifically, what we need to see is, like it is the case of Venezuela, we need to see uh, the free world, most EU, Latin American countries not recognizing the administration of Diaz-Canel, uh, the transfer of power from Raúl Castro to Díaz-Canel uh, was uh, certainly something uh, with no which gives him no legitimacy at all. We can argue uh, that the transfer of power from Fidel to Raúl and even Raúl, even Fidel Castro's uh, administration had no legitimacy at all. So what we need is support for Cubans and Venezuelans to be able to decide on their own on free and fair elections for a future uh, of progress and prosperity, and that starts with dealing with the Venezuelan government as a criminal organization and with Cuba as a regime which is uh, supporting that criminal organization by providing technical advice on matters of defense uh, and intelligence. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 